Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries of Bound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 140. This episode is entitled 14 Fascinating Facts About Foxes. Bible isn't just a religious book. The characters in the Bible live through a real history that was shared with other nations. But we only usually hear Israel's side of the story. The other nations of biblical times were also keeping histories which tell very different versions of the stories we've heard so many times. From the listverse.com An article by Mark Oliver. Ten historical records that tell another side of the Bible stories. Number ten. The Greek historian Strabo says Moses was an Egyptian priest. The story of Moses and the Ten Commandments is one of the best-known stories of the Bible. With God's help, The Bible says Moses brought plagues upon Egypt until the Pharaoh set the Jews free. According to the Greeks, though, Moses wasn't even Jewish. He was an Egyptian priest. Strabo tells us that Moses didn't like Egypt's institutions. He believed that God was in all things and so couldn't take the form of an animal or a person. This wasn't divine revelation. Here it's just presented as a philosophical musing. In Strabo's version, Moses didn't talk to God or fight the Pharaoh. Moses just convinced a lot of people that he was right and they emigrated freely to Jerusalem. After Moses' death, Strabo wrote that Jerusalem was taken over by superstitious, violent people who brought in tyrannical laws like kosher diets and circumcision. Their beginning was good, Strabo wrote, but they degenerated. Number 9. Esther's husband is the Persian king who fought Leonidas and the 300 Spartans. Usually, we just see the story of Esther as the Bible presents it. Esther married the king of Persia, 
And when the evil Haman plotted the genocide of the Jews, she persuaded the king to save her people. That king, though, was a major historical figure. Esther's husband was King Xerxes I, probably best known today as the bad guy from the movie 300. He was the Persian king who invaded Sparta and Athens after they refused to pay tribute and whose enormous army was held off by 300 Spartans. If the story of Esther is true, it's speculated that it probably happened while Xerxes was planning his invasion. So Esther's father Mordecai would have been one of Xerxes' advisers during the war. Number 8. The king of Moab called the Israelites oppressors. According to the Bible, King Misha of Moab rebelled against Israel. With the help of God and the prophet Elisha, the Israelites fought off the Moabites and brought the war into Moab. Misha sacrificed his own son as an offering to his gods, and the Israelites turned back home and willingly left Moab alone. But we've found a version written by King Misha that tells a very different story. According to Misha, the Israelites were tyrants who oppressed Moab many days. Misha asked for the freedom of his people, and Israel responded by threatening to destroy Moab. Israel, Misha says, attacked first, but he managed to fight them off. Then King Misha and his men marched on Israel and took back several cities that Israel had stolen from them long ago. In Misha's version, the war didn't end with Israel deciding to go home. Israel just lost. Number 7. Hazael says Israel attacked him first. The Bible only gives a brief mention of Hazael, the king of Aram. It says that Hazael conquered Israel by divine will because God was kindled against Israel. Also, Hazael oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. We've actually found a stone inscribed by Hazael, though, that tells his side of the story. The stone is broken, so there's a lot of dispute over what it really says. According to the most popular theory... The stones suggest that Hazael invaded Israel as a revenge for the invasion of Aram when his father was king. Then Hazael executed the kings of Israel. Hazael doesn't deny, though, that he was oppressive. I set their town into ruins, Hazael boasts, and their land into desolation. Number 6. Manetho says that Moses invaded and conquered Egypt. Every country has its own version of the story of Moses, including Egypt. Like the Greeks, the Egyptians say that Moses was an Egyptian priest of Heliopolis. Manetho insists that Moses' real name was Osasif, but he changed it when he joined the Jews. The story starts with Pharaoh Amenophis trying to cleanse the country of lepers after being told that leprosy was a divine curse. He put 80,000 lepers to work in a quarry and assigned Moses to take care of them. Instead, a power-hungry Moses established his own laws and ruled over the lepers. Then he made an alliance with Jerusalem. With an army of lepers and Jews, Moses invaded and conquered Egypt, burning down their temples. 
It took 13 years for Armenophis to build up his army and chase Moses out of Egypt. This, Manetho says, is how Moses came to Jerusalem. Number 5. The Egyptians celebrated laying Israel to waste. Archaeologists have found a slab engraved by Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah shortly after the reign of Ramses the Great that appears to talk about Israel. The slab was written when Egypt's world power was being tested by several smaller nations that were revolting against Egypt's control over them. According to the slab, Merneptah had defeated them all and laid them to ruin. Israel, it says, is laid waste and his seed is not. But the exact meaning of that sentence is unclear. Some believe that the Egyptians slaughtered the children of Israel to keep them from revolting, although it might mean that the Egyptians just burned the Israelis' crops. If seed means children, though, the inscription proves that Egypt really did slaughter Israeli babies, as in the story of Exodus. Number four. The Roman historian Tacitus said that Moses was an atheist. Tacitus seems to have had a hard time piecing out the true story of Moses, but he did his best. Like the Egyptians, Tacitus said that Egypt was plagued by a disfiguring disease and that the pharaoh expelled the victims. In this version, though, the pharaoh sent them into the wilderness. According to Tacitus, Moses was one of the diseased exiles and he hated God. He urged his companions not to wait passively for help from God or man, for both had deserted them. Moses led his group to Canaan and conquered it. Then he founded Judaism, not because he believed in it, but as a political tool to keep his people loyal. Number three, the Jewish Talmud calls Jesus a sorcerer. The Talmud gives its own version of the crucifixion of Jesus. It tells the story of a man called Yeshu, who was generally accepted as the Jesus of the Christian faith. According to the Talmud, before Jesus was executed, a herald was sent out calling him a sorcerer. Anyone who can say anything in his favour, the herald said, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. No one came forward to stand up for Jesus. In the Talmud, a man named Ullah is quoted as saying of Jesus, Do you suppose that he is one for whom a defence could be made? Ullah goes on to condemn the people who defended Jesus, saying that the scriptures said that a person like Jesus should never be spared. With Yeshu, however, it was different, Ullah said, for he was connected to royalty. 2. Pliny the Younger asked for help on how to deal with Christians. The biblical book of Acts describes a time when Christians were horribly persecuted by the Romans. However, we have a unique insight into the Roman view of this in a letter from Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. Pliny asked Trajan for help in dealing with Christians because Pliny didn't know how far he should go. He called Christianity a depraved, excessive superstition and said that his policy had been to give Christians the opportunity to curse Christ. If they did, Pliny let them go, 
but if they wouldn't, he'd have them executed. Pliny thought he was doing the right thing in letting Christians renounce their religion. A multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded, he wrote. Trajan approved. They are not to be sought out, he wrote back. If they are denounced and proven guilty, they are to be punished. And number one, the Romans thought Christians were cannibals. The Romans hated the Christians. Tacitus called their religion a most hideous superstition and said that they were charged with hatred against mankind. Even when he criticised Nero for being too cruel to Christians, Tacitus still believed that Christians were criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment. He wasn't alone. Suetonius called Christianity a mischievous superstition and actually praised some emperors for keeping the Christians in line. There's a reason for all the hate, though. When the Romans heard that Christians ate the body of Christ, the Romans took it literally. Many Romans believed that Christians would break into ritualistic cannibalism and incestuous orgies during assemblies. There's no reason to believe that Christians were really cannibalising anybody. However, it's interesting to think that if Christianity had been wiped out, that's exactly what our history books would say about Christians today. In August of 1955, Vice President Richard Nixon visited the former Orange Grove fields that had been meticulously cleared and packed with towering rocket ships, flying Dumbo carts and a castle. With cameras going off, Nixon was given the key to Disneyland by the park's own Vice President and General Manager, Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood. An engineer who had been hired away from the Stanford Research Institute, or the SRI, the year prior, C.V. Wood had selected the site in Anaheim, purchased the land and supervised construction. He was Disneyland's first employee. Walt Disney was known to refer to him as a son. Six months later, Wood was gone. Not just from the park, but from Disney's official history. From the mentalfloss.com website, a story by Jake Rosson. Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, the man erased from Disney history. Possibly the biggest influence on Disneyland next to Disney himself, Wood studied petroleum engineering at the University of Oklahoma. He met Disney when the animator began consulting with SRI on the logistics of his long-planned theme park. Wood proved so adept at solving problems and so enamoured with the concept of a fantasy landscape, he was brought on full-time to supervise the project's frenetic construction. The park opened in July 1955 and was an immediate success. Wood had a one-year contract 
But in January 1956, trade papers announced his departure from the company. That he'd leave a job he was so fond of so abruptly immediately raised questions. Embezzlement was one popular theory. Though there's never been a definitive answer, Van Arsdale France, a Disneyland employee who knew both Disney and Wood, believed the two men were so fiercely independent that their relationship wasn't going to last. In one week, Wood was holding his regular meetings as usual with an office crowded every minute of the day, France was quoted as saying in the Disneyland story. Just about overnight, he was out. According to employee Dick Irvine, Disney had his brother, Roy, fire Wood after a heated argument. But Wood was still fascinated by the amusement industry. With severance pay in his pocket, the year he separated from Disney, Wood started Marco Engineering, which specialised in the design and execution of attractions. Wood was a one-of-a-kind talent for investors who wanted to try and replicate Disney's success. He hired away several key Disney staffers to promote his fledgling business. He even started to bill himself as the master planner of Disneyland. Marco got off to an auspicious start. They opened Magic Mountain in Golden, Colorado in 1958, but construction delays bogged down business and the park was operational only during the summer. He also developed Pleasure Island, a Boston park that opened in 1959. Both ventures soon dissolved. By this point, Wood was invoking his Disney ties a little too often for his former boss's liking. When he opened Freedom Land in the Bronx in 1960, he billed it as the Disneyland of the East. Lawyers for Disney sued in order to protect the brand's copyright and the matter was settled out of court. While Wood had high hopes for Freedom Land, which tried to recreate historical cities and events, a series of incidents garnered the wrong kind of press. A stagecoach toppled over, breaking a guest's spine. Robbers made off with over $28,000. Freedom Land closed in 1964, unable to compete with the neighbouring World's Fair and its stockpile of Disney-endorsed attractions. Wood later became famous for moving the London Bridge to Arizona piece by piece for a tourist attraction in 1968. He also founded the International Chili Society before ending his career at Warner Brothers, where he worked until his death in 1992. There is no account of Wood ever reconciling with Disney. While the company has received criticism for not acknowledging his contributions to Disneyland, not everyone got the memo. In 2011, an official Disney travel magazine innocently offered a bit of trivia about the relocated London Bridge in Arizona and one of the men responsible for it, C.V. Wood. Well, here's one of those stories that uh, 
just never seems to go away. A bit like the Loch Ness Monster or something new about Stonehenge. The mystery of the Bermuda Triangle may finally be solved. And this was written by the NYPost.com and Corey Charlton was the author. Strange clouds forming above the Bermuda Triangle could explain why dozens of ships and planes have mysteriously vanished in the notorious patch of sea. The remarkable new theory suggests the clouds are linked to 170 mile per hour air bombs capable of bringing down planes and ships. Now the riddle could finally be solved after meteorologists speaking to the science channels What on Earth revealed their findings. Using radar satellite imagery, they discovered bizarre hexagonal shaped clouds between 20 and 50 miles wide forming over the dodgy patch of water. Meteorologist Dr Andy Cerveni said the satellite imagery is really bizarre. The hexagonal shapes of the cloud formations. These types of hexagonal shapes in the ocean are in essence air bombs. They're formed by what is called microbursts and they're blasts of air. The blasts are so powerful they can reach 170 miles per hour. A hurricane-like force easily capable of sinking ships and downing planes. For centuries, the notorious Bermuda Triangle, located between Miami, Puerto Rico and the island of Bermuda, has been linked with a high number of unexplained disappearances of aircraft and ships in its waters. The reasons behind the losses have baffled researchers for decades. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link to this article on episode 140 of the Mysteries Abound show notes, there is a video to go with this article. And from the sciencealert.com website, a story by Beck Crew. A mystery space plane has been orbiting Earth for 500 days. And we still don't know why. On the 20th of May 2015, the US military launched the robotic X-37B space plane into Earth's orbit to carry out its fourth top-secret mission. Now, more than 500 days later, that solar-powered unmanned drone is still up there, and with no word on how long it will remain in orbit or what it's actually doing up there, It's spurring the same kinds of conspiracy theories that followed it through previous missions. Is it deploying spy satellites into Earth's atmosphere? Is it interfering with the signals of other satellites? Is it part of the Pentagon's research into drone-based weaponry? Or has it been keeping tabs on China's ill-fated space station this whole time? Your guess is as good as mine. But what we do know is that during its 500 days in orbit, it's been carrying several payloads, a few of which have actually been identified. It's ferried a couple of prototype electric propulsion devices from the US Air Force and private aerospace and defence company Aerojet Rockdyne. Plus it's got collateral from NASA's Advanced Materials Investigation on board which aims to test how the space environment affects certain materials. It remains a very useful way to test out things, said Winston Beauchamp, Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for Space, 
during last month's American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics meeting in California. The Air Force's first such mission, called the OTV-4 mission, or Orbital Test Vehicle 4, launched in April 2010, and almost immediately the public was suspicious. Things only got worse when several amateur observers reported that space plane flies over the same region on the ground every four days. In interviews and statements, Pentagon leaders strongly denied that the winged plane had anything to do with space weapons, even while conceding that its ultimate goal was to aid terrestrial war fighters with a variety of ancillary missions, the New York Times reported in May of 2010. The Air Force responded vaguely by stating that the secret mission has no offensive capabilities, but rather the program supports technology risk reduction, experimentation and operational concept development. The second OTV-4 mission began on 5th of March 2011 and spent 468 days in orbit. The third mission saw X-37B spend nearly 675 days in orbit, and this current mission could see it spend even longer up there. Even if we never find out what X-37B's mission actually is, at least it's showcasing the capabilities of prolonged solar-powered flight. The Air Force states that the first three OTV-4 missions spent a total of 1,367 days in orbit and successfully demonstrated its reusable flight, re-entry and landing technologies. And let's face it, if there's something we desperately need for exploring the surfaces of other planets, it's solid automated landing techniques. And hey, if it really is spying on China's out-of-control Tiangong-2 space lab, maybe it can tell us where bits of it might land after it burns up in the atmosphere. The truth is out there. live on every continent except Antarctica and thrive in cities, towns and rural settings. But despite being all around us, they're a bit of a mystery. Here's more about this elusive animal. From the mentalfloss.com, a story by Joy Lanzendorfer. 14 fascinating facts about foxes. 1. Foxes are solitary. Foxes are part of the Canidae family, which means they're related to wolves, jackals and dogs. They're medium-sized, between 7 and 15 pounds, with pointy faces, lithe frames and bushy tails. But unlike their relatives, foxes are not pack animals. When raising their young, they live in small families, called a leash of foxes or a skulk of foxes, in underground burrows. Otherwise, they hunt and sleep alone. 2. Foxes have a lot in common with cats. Like the cat, the fox is most active after the sun goes down. In fact, it has vertically oriented pupils 
that allow it to see in dim light. It even hunts in a similar manner to a cat by stalking and pouncing on its prey. And that's just the beginning of the similarities. Like the cat, the fox has sensitive whiskers and spines on its tongue. It walks on its toes, which accounts for its elegant cat-like tread. And get this, many foxes have retractable claws that allow them to climb on rooftops or trees. Some foxes even sleep in trees, just like cats. 3. The red fox is the most common fox. The red fox has the widest geographical range of any animal in the order Carnivora. While its natural habitat is a mixed landscape of scrub and woodland, its flexible diet allows it to adapt to many environments. As a result, its range is the entire northern hemisphere, from the Arctic Circle to North Africa to Central America to the Asiatic steppes. It's also in Australia where it's considered an invasive species. And just a little note from me here, it is an introduced pest in Australia. 4. Foxes use the Earth's magnetic field. Like a guided missile, the fox harnesses the Earth's magnetic field to hunt. Other animals like birds, sharks and turtles have this magnetic sense, but the fox is the first one we've discovered that uses it to catch its prey. According to new scientists, the fox can see the Earth's magnetic field as a ring of shadow on its eyes that darkens as its head moves towards magnetic north. When the shadow and the sound the prey is making line up, it's time to pounce. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there's a video of the fox in action. 5. Foxes are good parents. Foxes reproduce once a year. Litters range from 1 to 11 pups, the average is 6, which are born blind and don't open their eyes until 9 days after birth. During that time, they stay with the vixen in the den while the dog or the male brings them food. They live with their parents until they're 7 months old. The vixen protects her pups with surprising loyalty. Recently, a fox pup was caught in a trap in England for two weeks but survived because its mother brought it food every day. 6. The smallest fox weighs under 3 pounds. Roughly the size of a kitten, the fennec fox has elongated ears and a creamy coat. It lives in the Sahara Desert, where it sleeps during the day to protect it from the searing heat. Its ears not only allow it to hear prey, they also radiate body heat, which keeps the fox cool. Its paws are covered with fur so that the fox can walk on hot sand, like it's wearing snowshoes. 7. Foxes are playful. Foxes are known to be friendly and curious. They play among themselves as well as with other animals like cats and dogs. They love balls, which they frequently steal from golf courses. Although foxes are wild animals, their relationship with humans goes way back. In 2011, researchers opened a grave in a 16,500-year-old cemetery in Jordan to find the remains of a man and his pet fox. This was 4,000 years before the first known human and dog were buried together. 8. You can buy a pet fox. In the 1960s, a Soviet geneticist named Dmitry Belayev bred thousands of foxes before achieving a domesticated fox. 
Unlike a tame fox which has learned to tolerate humans, a domesticated fox is docile towards people from birth. Today you can buy a pet fox for $9,000, according to Fast Company. They're reportedly curious and sweet-tempered, although inclined to dig in your furniture. 9. Arctic foxes don't shiver until minus 70 degrees Celsius. The Arctic fox, which lives in the northernmost areas of the hemisphere, can handle cold better than most animals on Earth. It doesn't even get cold until minus 70 degrees Celsius. Its white coat also camouflages it against predators. As the seasons change, the coat changes too, turning brown or grey so the fox can blend in with the rocks and dirt of the tundra. 10. Fox hunting continues to be controversial. Perhaps because of the fox's ability to decimate a chicken coop, in the 16th century fox hunting became a popular activity in Britain. In the 19th century, the upper classes turned fox hunting into a formalised sport where a pack of hounds and men on horseback chase a fox until it is killed. Today, whether to ban fox hunting continues to be a controversial subject in the UK. Currently, fox hunting with dogs is not allowed. 11. The fox appears throughout folklore. Examples include the nine-tailed fox from various ancient cultures, the Reynard tales from medieval Europe, the sly trickster fox from Native American lore, and Aesop's The Fox and the Crow. The Finnish believe a fox made the northern lights by running in the snow so that its tail swept sparks into the sky. From this we get the phrase fox fires. 12. Bat-eared fox listen for insects. The bat-eared fox is aptly named not just because of its five-inch ears, but because of what it uses those ears for. Like a bat, it listens for insects. On a typical night, the fox walks along the African savanna, listening until it hears the scuttle of prey. Although the fox eats a variety of insects and lizards, most of its diet is made up of termites. In fact, the bat-eared fox often makes its home in termite mounds, which it usually cleans out of inhabitants' before moving in. 13. Darwin discovered a fox species. During his voyage on the Beagle, Charles Darwin collected a fox that today is unimaginatively called Darwin's fox. This small grey fox is critically endangered and lives in just two spots in the world. One population is on the island of Chilo in Chile and the second is in the Chilean National Park. The fox's greatest threats are unleashed domestic dogs that carry diseases like rabies. 14. Foxes sound like this. Foxes make 40 different sounds, some of which you can listen to on a link at the website. The most startling is the scream. Pleasant dreams.
The line between goddess and witch, or witch and saint, is very thin in ancient history. One example of this confusion is the legendary story of Aradia, a woman whose life has been explored in neo-pagan and folklorist accounts of ancient myths and legends. Aradia's story became popular with the growth of Wicca and other neo-pagan traditions. She is known as the Queen of the Witches and the Goddess of the Moon. Aradia is often presented as an important deity and her character appears in many books. However, her origins are not so obvious. In fact, it seems that there are still more questions than answers related to this mysterious woman. From the ancientorigins.net website, who was the mysterious Aradia? Italian goddess or wicked witch? And this article is written by Natalia Klimsack. According to Charles Godfrey Leyland, an American folklorist, his book Aradia, or The Gospel of the Witches, is a text which is based on the old knowledge of pagan witches from Tuscany, Italy. Leyland says that his book is based on a text he received from a woman named Madalena, who lived in Tuscany. This account of Aradia is said to be created from ancient Etruscan mythology. The folklorist presents Aradia as a female messiah who came to earth to support witches in their fight against the Catholic Church. Leyland's writings became very popular following 1899. But the main question asked by historians is about the validity of his text. Leyland claimed that the book he wrote was based on very good resources and stories repeated by centuries of people who were interested in witchcraft. However, many historians doubt it. The story of Aradea starts with her birth. Leyland writes that she was a daughter of a good and powerful deity named Diana and Lucifer, the most powerful of the devils, who was also her brother. In this version of the myth, Lucifer is the god of the sun, moon and light, whose handsomeness was overwhelming. Since the first chapter, the author of the book shows Aradea's power and an important mission which had been given to her by her mother. One day Diana said to her daughter Aradea, "'Tis true indeed that thou a spirit art, but thou wert born but to become again, a mortal, Thou must go to earth below to be a teacher unto women and men who fain would study witchcraft in thy school. Yet like Cain's daughter thou shalt never be, nor like the race who have become at last wicked and infamous from suffering, as are the Jews and wanderings in Gari, who are all thieves and knaves, like unto them ye shall not be. And thou shalt be the first of witches known, and thou shalt be the first of all in the world, and thou shalt teach the art of poisoning, of poisoning those who are great lords of all. Yea, thou shalt make them die in their palaces, and thou shalt bind the oppressor's soul with power. And when ye find a peasant who is rich, then ye shall teach the witch, your pupil, how to ruin all his crops, with tempests dire, with lightning and with thunder terrible, and the hail and the wind. Some parts of Leyland's text are related to ancient mythology, 
while others remind one of local stories of different spirits, creatures and witches. The truth behind Aradir's story was mixed with other myths and legends, and it created a monumental book which inspired new life in pagan beliefs. Leyland's book also inspired new books, including the famous Charge of the Goddess. These publications sound very convincing and assert that they describe the real legend of the goddess. However, their information is still uncertain because most of the texts are based on the book Leyland published in 1899. And in Leyland's representation of her, Aradia appears as a sexual and sensual character whose powers of witchcraft are stronger than many others. Current historians and folklorists still can't prove or deny the story created by the book published more than a hundred years ago. Nonetheless, Sabina Magliocco, a specialist in Italian folklore, believes that Aradia's legend is a compilation of many characters known from ancient times to the 19th century. She suggests that Aradia must have been a supernatural creature related to Italian folklore. Magliocco identified Aradia with the legendary witch figure, who is probably a supernatural legend known in the Sardinian tradition as Sarayusta. Another theory comes from Raven Grimasi, who created Stregeria, a neo-pagan tradition. He says that a woman known as Aradia di Toscano was a real person who lived in the 14th century and was a witch or a powerful leader of a group of witches who worshipped the goddess Diana. Grimasi supposed that the woman described by Leyland was none other than a medieval witch who believed she was an ancient goddess's daughter. One more hypothesis comes from Messia Eliadi, a Roman historian of religion who lived between 1907 and 1986. Eliadi suggests that the name Aradia comes from Arada and Airodiada, a folkloric name for the famous queen of the fairies. In Romanian culture, she was related to Diana and was a patron for a group of dancers who existed until the end of the 19th century, although it's possible that they secretly continue their work even now. No matter what the origins of Aradia are, she's still an important part of the story of the goddess Diana. Leyland's text is one of the key books of modern witchcraft and also one of the most fascinating materials on literacy, folklore, mythology and historical research. And from the bbc.com website, a story by Stephen Dowling. The real-life diseases that spread the vampire myth. Diseases were frightening things before the age of medical science. Plagues and epidemics could appear without warning and cause death and misery. It wasn't just plagues, 
other diseases, perhaps passed on by animals or from genes lying dormant in their own bodies, could cause ailments that defied explanation. People turned instead to the supernatural. Some of these diseases helped spawn one of the most enduring and widespread monster myths in civilization: the vampire. The vampire, an undead figure who rises each night from his unquiet grave to feast on the blood of the living, has appeared since the time of the ancient Greeks. While some of the sage old philosophers we still admire today might have lived into their 70s, life expectancy in ancient Greece was thought to be around 28. Centuries before sanitation, refrigeration and antibiotics, diseases were more prevalent and were far more likely to take people to an early grave. But without a microscope to study these tiny assailants, Communities in older times saw the hand of the supernatural in many diseases. Take porphyria, for instance, which affects heme, the chemical compound which helps make up the haemoglobin found in our blood. The patients suffer itching, rashes and blisters every time their skin is exposed to sunlight. In the very worst and thankfully very rare cases, the gums recede from the teeth making them appear far more prominent. Their bodily waste takes on a purple hue, like that of undigested blood, and the effects of sensitivity to light can be so severe that sufferers lose their ears and noses. A physiognomy echoed in the look of vampires such as Nosferatu. Most of its sufferers will show far less drastic symptoms than those described. Desiree Lyon Howe of the American Porphyria Foundation says there are probably no more than a few hundred of these severe cases in the entire world at any one time. But their incidence may have been greater in remote communities in medieval times, ones which had less frequent contact with the outside world and a less varied gene pool. The rural hamlets and farming villages in Transylvania, now part of Romania, fit this bill. And it is from Eastern European regions, such as Transylvania, that the vampire myth spread westwards. Author Roger Luckhurst, who edited Oxford World Classics reprint of Bram Stoker's Dracula, has researched the conditions which spread the belief in vampires showing that the myth began to gain popularity in the early 18th century. The first mention of the word vampire in the English language is in the 1730s, in newspapers which carry reports from the edge of Europe of bodies being dug up and looking bloated and having fresh blood around their mouths. They report that these stories have come from peasants, but they make them sound very plausible. When calamity struck these rural areas, plague, cattle dying, many would point the finger at an undead spirit preying on the living. Often the first act would be to dig up the last person who had died in the village. And that leads us to another problem. Medical science was in such infancy that even telling if a person had died wasn't exactly foolproof. Diseases such as catalepsy, which put people into a catatonic state so deep that their pulse was hard to detect, meant that some were buried alive. If they awoke, 
Some were driven so mad with fear and hunger that they would bite themselves. An explanation, perhaps, for some of the corpses found with fresh blood. Most people in these communities kept animals. The villages themselves were usually close to forests and woodlands, home to many other animals. Before vaccination was discovered, rabies, now virtually unknown in the European wild, was common. Once symptoms, which include aversion to light and water, aggression, biting and delirium, developed, death was inevitable. There is no cure. Rabies is obviously where we get the link to the werewolf too, says Luckhurst. People were turned feral by this contact with animals. There is a degree of folk wisdom in the werewolf myth, a warning for people not to connect yourself too much to the natural world. You had to remember your humanity. The isolation of many of these communities far away from the civilised avenues of Paris and London may have contributed in other ways. There used to be a lack of variety in the diet in these places, especially in mountainous areas, and people would commonly suffer from things like goiter, caused by iodine deficiency, says Luckhurst. A lack of nutrients would not only have made people more susceptible to disease, but in some cases may have exacerbated the effects of some conditions hidden in their genes. And the way these vampire stories work for the 18th century people living in London and Paris and reading these stories in their papers is that it tells a good story about how civilised and advanced we are. And look at these superstitious Catholic peasants who lived on the boundary of Europe. Interestingly, however, there are many cultures around the world, in different continents and at different times, that share the myth of these blood-sucking undead. There are the Mananagal in the Philippines, and the Puchin of Chile, the Bayo-Bathan Sith of Scotland, and the Yarama-Yarhu of indigenous Australian tribes. Essentially, the vampire myth comes from more than just disease, says Luckhurst. The vampire always seems to come from somewhere outside of the comforts of our own homes. Be that a rural Transylvanian cottage, an English stately home or ancient Athens. It always comes from somewhere else. In ancient Greece, the barbarians from beyond the Greek world were cannibals and bloodsuckers and able to do all sorts of black magic that they weren't. In other places, it was the pagan tribes... Even in South America, he says, the vampiric creatures the Incas believed in were from the wilds beyond their cities. The vampire seems to be a vehicle, not just for the diseases that we were not able to comprehend, but for all those strange, unmapped places, and the people that lived in them, too. The bandwidth for this podcast was provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info, and our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash paulrexy, and that's spelt P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y. 
And just a big thank you to these people, Jeff Chapman, Scott McClory, Luke Hewson, who are three of our regular subscribers, and John Venditti for giving a donation to the podcast and helping with its production and upkeep and costs and all that sort of stuff. So thank you, you four. Your help is truly greatly appreciated. And if you're inclined to help out the podcast, it can be done through the PayPal link on the origins.info site. It can be done directly through a PayPal account or via a credit card. There is a link for that there as well. Anyway, on with the show. From the creepypasta.com website, a story by Alex Taylor, The Blagenschlaw. Have you seen the Blagenschlaw, hung by rope, composed of gore, who says his name and nothing more, his true name lost in days of yore? At the grey and barren meadow, where ancient rivers used to flow, the dying light of summer's glow, will call him from the dark below. Those are the first two stanzas of the Blagenschlaw, said Susan Ferris. They describe Arbor Mill's most famous ghost and how to find him. Supposedly, if you go into the grey meadow in the woods, east of town, on the hottest day of the year, you will see the Blagenschlaw at sunset. It appears as a man being strangled by his own intestines. His name comes from the stories that the only sounds he can make while being strangled sound like blag and schlaw. Susan attempted to get a laugh from the class in front of her by mimicking the rough zombie-like sounds. It didn't work. Most of the people in Mr Edwards' class looked bored, including Mr Edwards. No one knows who he was or why he haunts the woods. But the local tradition states that if you see the Blagenschlaw and survive, you get to write a new stanza for the poem describing your encounter. The entire poem is kept at the public library. To date, at least four people have never come back from their hunt for the Blagenschlaw, but it's widely assumed that they just wanted to get out of Arbermill. That one got a couple of laughs. She was about to conclude the report when the bell rung, signalling the end of the day and the school year. The majority of the class jumped out of their seats and sprinted for the hallway. Susan grabbed her books off her desk and was about to head for the hallway when Edwards cleared his throat and beckoned her over to him. Susan tried not to groan too loudly. Well, asked Susan, putting on a fake smile, what did you think? Edwards' expression made the answer relatively obvious. For starters, I think you half-arsed that presentation the same way you've been half-arsing this class all year. And what makes you think that, asked Susan, in a tone of disbelief that didn't seem entirely genuine. Susan, this assignment might seem easy, but it's supposed to sum up the class, said Edwards. I ask kids to go out and write about a local ghost story. This is Arbor Mill. 
We have about 10,000 of them. I always hope the kids will bring in something close to home, personal even. I like students knowing that the history around them affects them. And I totally understand that, said Susan. Can I go now? She took a step towards the door. Edwards kept talking. You picked the Blagenschlaw, he said. It's an old story that everyone in town over the age of five knows. You didn't say anything that the kids in here haven't heard before. It wasn't anything personal. You just picked something you didn't have to do work for. I know at least two other students made up their stories completely, said Susan. At least they put in the effort, said Edwards. Spoken like a true Ferris, though. Blame everyone else. Susan winced. Her family was not held in the highest regard in Arbour Mill. Not a one worth a damn, the older residents would say. Yeah, said Susan, so what? It's not like this class matters. This is just the easiest elective I could take this year. Local history is not a class that's going to go on my college resume. Edwards leaned back in his chair and smirked briefly. Probably not, he said. But getting an F in such a worthless class would look pretty bad on a transcript. You can't fail me, said Susan. She crossed her arms and stood straighter, trying to be intimidating. Edwards wasn't buying it. Final grades go out in a week, he said, smiling. If you don't make this up in that time, I most certainly can. Susan's demeanour changed abruptly. She brushed her hair back and leaned towards her teacher. You're sure we just can't move past this, she asked, smiling innocently. Edwards rolled his eyes. I've been teaching a long time, Miss Ferris. Don't even try. Susan reverted back to being pissed off instantly. So what the hell do you want then? You're going to redo this report on the Blagenschlaw. Susan raised an eyebrow. I thought you said you didn't like me doing the Blagenschlaw. I have a challenge for you, said Edwards. If you can bring me five facts about the Blagenschlaw that I've never heard, I'll give you an A. That is BS, said Susan. Everybody already knows everything about that stupid ghost. You've got six days, Miss Ferris, said Edwards. The public library closes at 7.30, so I suggest you get down there while you can. Susan started to protest, but stopped herself short. She started to storm out of the room, but Edward spoke up again, this time in a softer tone. I'm sorry about the family remarks, Susan, but you're the only Ferris I can remember that might actually do something with their life. I want you to appreciate that. Susan didn't reply as she left the room. She thought again about changing her name. An hour later, Susan Ferris found herself in the Arbour Mill Public Library. She had contemplated asking the librarian for help, but the glare she had gotten when she walked in had soured her on that plan. Susan thought that if she didn't know better, she'd think the librarian preferred being the only one in the building. God knew there wasn't anyone else in there. As Susan approached the large shelf labelled Local Legends near the back of the library, she saw the framed Blagenschlaw poem on the wall. Twenty-two verses of made-up stories. For as many ghost stories as Arbour Mill had, Susan had never believed in any of them. She usually assumed it was for the tourists that came to see the most haunted town in the Midwest. 
It was possibly the most interesting thing in Iowa, besides corn. Quickly scanning the poem, she saw the final four lines were by Chris Sanders, who had gone out to the woods on a dare after graduating last year. Out in the woods I saw the ghost. It looked really gross. It went back in the trees, because it didn't want to mess with me. Chris wasn't the best poet in the world. Susan turned her attention to the shelf full of books. There were dozens of books that might have information on the Blagenschlor. She decided to start with one titled Legends of Arbermill. It was the newest book, written by some lady named Laura Smold. Susan vaguely remembered her going around town last year, dragging up every little story she could. She opened up the book and quickly found the entry about the Blagenschlor. It said pretty much everything she'd said in her presentation with one added detail. It said the last person said to be taken by the ghost was John Tracy, who disappeared on June 21st of 2013. Susan only knew him from vague rumours around town. From all accounts, he was a drugged-up freeloader. The story went that he bet a large sum of money to stay out in the woods all night. When he disappeared, the general consensus was that he'd taken the money and gotten out of town. Susan looked through three more books, with little to show for it other than a doodle of a stick figure Blagenschlor she had been drawing on one of the tables. The fifth book she grabbed was titled Ghosts of the Heartland and was from 1991. The Blagenschlor was one of three ghosts from Arbor Mill detailed in this book. She scanned the article, not hoping for much, when something she saw sent a chill down her spine. It talked about the three people that disappeared before Tracy. It said they had vanished in 1910, 1949, and the last one was a man named Jeff Olson on June 21st of 1980. Susan knew she had found something that no one else knew. Thirty-three years apart, people had vanished in the woods on the exact same date, and now she knew the years of the other two disappearances. Susan began ripping books off the shelves, flipping through the pages and stuffing them back on if they didn't have any dates in the entry. Two hours later, at 6.30, she was amazed to realise she had been through the entire shelf of books without finding another clue. Susan collapsed into a nearby chair in disbelief. Out of the corner of her eye, she could see the poem on the wall. It almost felt like it was taunting her. She was about ready to go smash the frame when an idea occurred to her. She sprang to her feet and made her way across the library, hurrying past the librarian's desk to find herself at the newspaper archive. The entire section was filled with massive binders with old copies of the Arbor Mill Post stored in plastic sleeves. A sign on the wall informed her that she was not allowed to take the binders out of the library. Scanning the older section of binders, she found the collection from 1949. She laid it on a table and began flipping through the sleeves of yellowed pages. She paused at June 21st, hoping she was wrong and right at the same time. Flipping the page, she saw what she had expected. On June 22nd of 1949, Matt Slater was reported missing. 
The article was very brief and set in the bottom right corner of the page. All it said was his parents' names, his age, and that he was last seen heading into the woods. Susan slammed the binder shut and went back to see if the papers went all the way back to 1910. Yes, she screamed as she saw the year she was looking for. Quiet, came the reply from the front desk. She didn't pause as she flipped through the pages this time. She knew what she was going to find. Brenda Baker had disappeared into the woods on June 21st of 1910. This article was much more informative, but also very strange. Some say that the disappearance is the work of the ghost dubbed the Blagenschlaw, first sighted nine years ago in the Malone Woods, read Susan. She had never heard the woods called the Malone Woods. Nowadays they were just the East Woods, Thought to have something to do with certain events taking place in 1890, the ghost is rarely seen due to the shunned nature of the forest. A reward would be given for any information regarding the disappearance. Residents are advised to avoid Malone Woods in the meantime. Susan sat down and stared at the page. Something had happened in 1890 that had made the town shun the forest for 19 years. Something that the writer would not even give a name to. Something that had been covered up. Susan felt anxious as she walked towards the older section of the archive. When she found the binder labelled 1890, she had the urge to flee the room and take the F. Something drove her on, however. It was a notion that had finally taken hold that there was something out there in the woods. She was a believer for the first time. Susan slowly turned the pages of the binder, not knowing exactly what she was going to find. Everything was normal for the first few months. Around the beginning of May, a drought had set in on the county. That was all the post talked about for weeks. On June 17th of 1890, everything changed. The headline read, A Butcher Among Us. It detailed the police discovering the body of a young woman that had been strangled and mutilated. Two days later, another girl was found dead. The exact method they were killed by was absent from the article, but the second mentioned massive wounds to the torso. One day after the second body was found, a young man was found dead with similar wounds. As Susan turned the page, she expected the string of bodies to continue. However, the next page's headline was a different kind of frightening. Massive plumes of smoke were seen early in the morning over the woods east of Arborville. With the severe drought, it was a possibility that the entire forest and town with it might go up in flames. Susan quickly flipped to the next page to see how they stopped the fire. It turned out that they didn't. A massive rainstorm moved in overnight and drowned the flames. It had been the first rain in two months. When Susan read the first paragraph of the story from June 22nd, she knew that page was what she had been waiting for. Looking at her watch, she knew the librarian would be kicking her out shortly. She needed to look this over carefully, and she needed it that night. Keeping one eye on the doorway, Susan opened the latch on the binder and took out the page. Seeing more of the same story in the next day's edition, she took that one out as well. 
She could hear the librarian getting up from her chair and she rolled up the pages and stuffed them into her book bag. A moment later, she was smiling innocently at the librarian as she yelled at Susan to get out. Later in her room, Susan pulled out the pages and unrolled them on the bed. Rolling them up had damaged them a bit, but they were still quite legible. It detailed the events of the day, beginning with the pillar of smoke mysteriously disappearing. When police and firemen entered the woods, they found three things. First, a large area of the forest had been reduced to ash. The burned woods were at the intersection of two dry riverbeds. Secondly, they found two dead bodies burned down to the bone. Lastly, they found a young woman in hysterics, a short way outside the burned area. After they got her calmed down a bit, she claimed that one man had kidnapped her and was going to kill her out in the woods. The other man had witnessed the kidnapping, followed them and saved her. She was unaware of how the fire started. The two bodies were identified soon after. The kidnapper's name was Silas Malone, a man that had moved back to Arbor Mill after spending most of his life in the Deep South. The picture of the man in the paper was unnerving. He had pale, staring eyes, a scar across one cheek and part of an ear missing. The man who had stopped him was identified as Daniel Ferris. Susan stopped reading and just stared at the page as her family's name stared back at her. She didn't recognise the picture next to the name, but even in black and white, she could tell that Daniel had the bright green eyes that were so common in her family. She quickly turned to the paper from June 23rd. The police conducted a search of Malone's property in the woods and found a charnel house. Several parts missing from the three human victims were found, as well as a number of dead animals. As far as they could tell, the oldest parts were from at least a month prior, the same time that Malone cut himself off from what few friends and family members he had. Reports said that he had become obsessed with the idea of mortality. After all was said and done, Daniel Ferris was a hero. Malone's estranged family denied any inheritance and gifted all of his assets and property to Ferris's widow and child. Susan suspected two things from the reports. First, she knew that the incident had to have been covered up by the town. Malone and Ferris's names had been stricken from the records. Even the name of the woods had eventually been forgotten. Secondly, she no longer thought the hottest day of summer was a factor. It was the date that it all ended, June 21st, which just happened to be tomorrow. She just had to talk to one person to be sure. The next day she headed down to the mall at ten to find Chris Sanders, the last person to go out into the woods. She remembered that he had gone out on the 21st because it was the day after school had ended. He came back with a wild story and added his lines to the Blagenschlaw poem. She found him almost immediately hanging out with his buddies outside the main door into the mall. He smiled broadly as Susan approached him. "'Hey there, babe,' said Chris. "'Heard Edwards chewed you out good yesterday. "'Want to tell us how you got out of that one in graphic detail?' "'Actually, I have a question for you,' said Susan. "'Chris and his cronies laughed. "'I'm free tonight, if that's what you want to know,' said Chris with a smirk. 
Good. Then you can come out to the East Woods with me tonight, said Susan. You went out there last year, right? The blood drained out of Chris's face as his smirk faltered. Of course I did, he said. And I saw that stupid ghost. I wasn't scared at all. Susan stared him down. I know you didn't go out to the Grey Meadow, Chris, said Susan, because I know what happened to the people that really did on the 21st. They're the ones that didn't come back. Chris's face went from pale to grey. You're saying that if I'd actually gone, you'd have done the world a service, Chris. Nice talking to you. As Susan walked away, she could hear all of his buddies starting to yell at him. She knew what she had to do now. She had to go out to the ashen meadow where the dry rivers met and prove all of it once and for all. She'd keep people out of those woods and save her family's name at the same time. Everyone said that the burnt meadow was easy to find. You just had to find one of the dry riverbeds running through the woods. Susan arrived at the edge of the woods around eight o'clock while the sun was still shining. That gave her about an hour to get to the meadow. She set her phone to go off five minutes before sunset so she could have her camera at the ready. Ten feet away from the tree line, she almost gave up and turned back. She had enough to give Edwards at this point anyways. Then she remembered Daniel Ferris's eyes. That was her family's legacy. He was a hero that nobody remembered. She had left a note in her room with everything in it in case she didn't come back just like Daniel. Susan stepped into the Malone woods. The woods weren't overly dense, but the oppressive heat still made them seem claustrophobic. There was absolutely no breeze inside the trees. Susan couldn't see a single branch or leaf moving. She couldn't hear any birds or animals. It was like time had stopped inside the forest. She could imagine the woods having been exactly the same for a thousand years until Silas Malone decided to make them his own. Susan had been hiking for almost 20 minutes when she finally heard the first noise other than herself. It sounded like footsteps behind her. She quickly spun round, hoping to see an animal of some sort. There was nothing. She waited for a minute, hoping the sound would happen again. It didn't. She turned and began walking again. As soon as her back was turned... More footsteps echoed through the woods. She spun round again, more quickly this time, hoping to catch someone behind her. Again, there was nothing. She walked back the way she had come, checking behind trees as she went. She searched the entire area the sound seemed to come from and could not find the source. Checking her phone again, she saw that she only had half an hour to find the meadow. She began walking very quickly into the woods and once again as she turned her back the footsteps came from behind her, directly behind her, within five feet. Susan ran. As she sprinted through the woods the footsteps ran with her, never losing or gaining ground. Susan dodged trees left and right trying to lose her pursuer in the more dense foliage. At one point, the feet behind gained on her and pulled her to her right. Susan resisted the desire to look back and darted left, trying to run faster. A stitch in her side told her that she couldn't keep up the pace much longer. 
As the trees round her began to blur, a strange thought occurred to her. She felt like she was being steered, directed towards a specific point. As soon as the thought materialised, the ground beneath her fell away at an incline. She instantly lost her footing and fell headfirst down the slope. As she fell, she finally looked behind her and saw only trees. Susan woke up to the sound of her phone's alarm going off. It was the alarm that meant five minutes until sunset. She sat upright and looked around her. Red light shone through the treetops as the sun began to set. She didn't have much time. She looked back at the slope she had fallen down. Her eyes followed it down into the woods. Looking behind her, she saw another slope on the other side. Susan realised she had found one of the dead rivers. She rose groggily to her feet, rubbing the sore spot on her head. After a moment's consideration, she faced the path of the riverbed, away from the setting sunset, and ran as fast as she could. The sun was still barely over the horizon when she reached the ashen meadow. She climbed up the side of the riverbed and into a large round area, directly between the two valleys. It was a patch of grey dirt about 200 feet wide. There were some sickly-looking weeds, but the only evidence that anything substantial had ever grown there were two charred tree trunks that were mostly rotted. The fading red light had an ominous effect on the ground. The grey and red combined to make the ground look as though there were fires still burning. Susan was almost grateful when the light finally faded and the dusk set in. Susan wasn't sure what was going to happen, but it was going to happen on tape. She pulled out her phone and a flashlight and started recording the area around her. So far there wasn't much to see, just trees and scorched earth. After scanning the trees for five minutes with nothing to show for it, Susan decided to turn off the camera to conserve the battery. She had just put the phone back in her pocket when she heard it from behind her. A low and haunting sound. Blub! Her blood ran cold. It sounded just like she'd imagined. Words being stifled by a crushed throat. Susan turned her light behind her. Out of the wood came the Blagenschlor. It was exactly as she expected, and far, far worse at the same time. It was a vaguely transparent young man that came stumbling out of the trees. Out of a massive hole in his abdomen came a distended mass of entrails that reached up and around his throat. Translucent blood dripped off of every wound and left a shining trail behind him. It was the eyes that she found the worst, though. There were two bloodshot masses of pain, suffering, sorrow and rage. Susan began to back up slowly, not wanting the thing to reach her. As she studied the phantom, she realised that the ghost was neither Silas Malone nor Daniel Ferris. She actually recognised him as the third body discovered during Malone's killing spree. Still backing up towards the riverbed, Susan pulled out her phone and tried to get the camera working again. She looked at the screen only to see the words, low battery, before the screen went black. Shlaw! The new moan came from behind her. She turned to see another transparent figure climbing up the embankment. This one was a young man in the same condition as the other figure, 
From what remained of his clothing, he had to have been from a much more recent time period than 1890. As this revelation came to her, moans came from the woods in every direction. Susan flashed the light all around the meadow and saw six more lurching phantasms coming out of the forest around her. A monstrous chorus of agonised groans filled the air. Susan looked around her for a way out, but the ghosts seemed to be everywhere she looked, pain and rage shining in their eyes. Susan had almost given up hope when she heard a loud noise in the woods to her right. A figure that was definitely not a ghost leapt out of the woods and motioned for her to follow. This way, hurry! Susan recognised Chris's voice. Somehow the arsehole had summoned up the courage to come out here. Susan wondered if he wasn't that bad after all before running to him. The new arrival had thrown the ghosts into disarray. Susan ran by them and into the woods as they were staring at Chris. As she hit the woods, he ran behind her. About a minute into the woods, Susan had to stop and lean against a tree. She doubted the ghosts were quick enough to follow them, and all of the running from earlier had taken its toll on her body. She was amazed she was still capable of keeping upright. Chris walked by her and looked deeper into the woods. She shined the light on him as he faced away from her. She still couldn't believe he'd followed her. They probably won't follow us for long, he said. They don't like straying too far out of the grey meadow. Even in her exhausted state, there was something about his voice that sounded off to Susan. Chris had no accent, but she noticed a distinct drawl in the last sentence. She looked more closely at the figure in front of her. Susan's eyes trailed up his body, becoming more concerned with every inch. At last she saw the side of his head. A piece of the figure's ear was missing, and she had seen that wound before. Silas Malone, she said in a whisper. The figure in front of her jerked at the sound of the name. There was a long pause, and then the laughter began. It was a loud, hysterical laugh that sounded like he had just heard the funniest joke in the world. I haven't heard that name in so long, Missy, said the figure. Whatever he had done to mimic Chris's voice was completely gone now. Malone's voice was low and hoarse. So, we got us a historian here. Malone turned and Susan saw the face from the newspaper. The pale blue eyes and the scar stood out on a face that was otherwise blackened by ash. There was a maniacal grin on his face, full of jagged, smoke-stained teeth. "'What are you?' she asked, staring in horror. Malone approached her slowly, knowing she wasn't going anywhere. "'Well, I ain't no pansy-ass ghost,' said Malone. "'That's for damn sure. "'I'm what you'd call a revenant, caught between the dead and the living. "'I'm here for some very specific unfinished business.' He put one hand on the tree above her and leaned down, his face inches from Susan. So what brings you to these parts of the woods talking about old Silas? She steeled herself and looked him square in the pale eyes. I'm Susan Ferris. Realisation dawned on the dead man's face. There was a hint of rage in his eyes before a wide smile broke out onto his face again. 
Well, don't that beat all, he asked. Malone suddenly grabbed Susan by the throat and threw her to the ground. He began to squeeze. You're going to wish you'd kept that little bit of information to your damn self. He let go of her throat and Susan gulped in a deep breath of air. She felt Malone grab one of her feet and began to drag her. He was headed back to the meadow. Now, I usually like doing my own work out here, said Malone. I like doing it right when people have that feeling of hope, right when they think they're getting out alive. But you, Miss Ferris, you're going to have an audience, and I hate to inform you, but you're going to suffer a lot more than most of them. In her light summer clothes, Susan could feel every rock and twig on the ground scraping against her body. She attempted to kick her leg free of Malone, but his cold hand had a death grip. He wasn't letting go, and she didn't have the ability to fight. You see, little girl, I had an arrangement with certain parties I can't place a name to. The price for what I wanted was five souls sent downtown. Three were easy. Then your great-great-granddaddy decided to be a hero and try to save number four. I knew he was following me the entire way. These are my woods, you see. Susan looked ahead groggily and saw the moonlight in the clearing ahead. The dipshit thought he was being sneaky. He hung back a ways and kept lighting matches to see his way. Must have thought they'd be harder to see. So he comes up on my clearing, right? And I'm waving my knife around in front of that girl's pretty little stomach and he can't take it. Did exactly what I expected him to do and tried to get the drop on me. I'm proud to say that I had him gutted in under 30 seconds. Some hero he was. He still killed you, said Susan, still clinging on to some semblance of lucidity. Malone dropped her briefly and turned to her with rage in his eyes. That dumb son of a bitch couldn't kill me in a thousand years, he shouted. He dropped one of his goddamn lit matches on the grass as I was gutting him. It was so damn dry it all lit up right under my feet, and what a sick goddamn joke it was. Last thing I felt was the rain hitting my face. Malone cracked up at that and started to laugh like a maniac again. He grabbed her leg again and continued. But I got myself a loophole. I was the fifth soul owed, you see. So I get a second chance. I needed five more to add to the pyre. Malone dragged Susan out of the tree line and into the ashen meadow again. The full moon had risen and the clearing was fully visible. Susan could count eight ghosts moaning in the darkness, all of them backing away from Malone. These deadheads get the whole week to spook people here, said Malone, but I get all of one night a year to do my work. Do you realise how many years it has taken for five people to come out here on exactly the 21st of June? He dropped Susan's leg and left her rolling on the ground in agony. Her leg felt like it had almost been dislocated and her back was torn up. Since 1891, she asked, barely coherent. Oh, you ain't lying, said Malone, turning towards her. And guess what? You're number five. So I think they all need to see this. You think the summer's hot up here, little girl? Wait till you feel the heat down below. I can tell you, it feels a lot like burning to death. I've done both, you see. Susan struggled to get to her feet, but her body didn't want to cooperate. That night had taken an awful toll. And what do you get out of it? she asked, her eyes meeting Malone's. I wanted to live forever, he said. 
and now I get to do it outside of this sorry little excuse for a forest. Although I might actually miss it, you know. That's why this all works, you see. Because these are my woods, in life and in death. I control what goes on in here. What he said stirred something in Susan's mind, something she read in a newspaper. No, she said, rising onto one knee with a great effort. They're not. Malone stared her down. What do you mean by that? After you died, your family didn't want anything you owned, said Susan. They gave all of your property to Daniel Ferris's widow, everything including your land. These woods belong to my family. Malone began to chuckle. He seemed to be forcing his laugh this time. You think anything a damn piece of paper says changes anything? asked Malone. These are my woods and my souls. The transparent figures surrounding Malone took their eyes off of him and looked at each other. Susan gathered every ounce of strength she had left and rose shakily to her feet. I say that all of these souls are free, she said. And you, Silas, you can go and join yours down in hell. Malone must have felt a change, because he suddenly had a look of panic on his face. He looked at the souls around him. They were looking at each other more urgently now, their moans becoming louder. With a mighty effort, one of the ghosts yanked on the bowels around his neck. They let loose. No, said Malone, you belong to me. You cannot disobey me. Put that back around your neck. Another ghost took the intestines from their neck, then another and another. Malone turned back to Susan with a look of rage and horror. Let's see how much power you have here when you're soul number five. Malone pulled a blackened knife from his belt and ran at Susan. She saw the blade seconds away from her. Then as he began to thrust it into her, something caught his arm. It was a loop of intestine. Malone jerked backwards, caught in the loop. He reached out for Susan with his other arm, but two inches from her face, another loop of entrails ensnared his other hand. They yanked backwards and pulled Malone to his knees. Susan looked around in shock as she saw the ghosts gathering behind him, two of their intestines stretching impossibly long to latch onto Malone. Another stepped forward and its bowels shot forward, snaring Malone around the neck. He began to choke out muffled curses. No, she's mine! Malone grabbed the noose around his neck and pulled it away briefly. She is mine! After that deafening howl, the snares around him yanked back with huge force. Malone reached down with a mighty effort and dug into the ground, his fingers levering a smouldering trail of scorched earth as he slid back towards the vengeful crowd of phantoms. His pale eyes were filled with a fear more visceral than any of the ghosts. More and more of the ghosts grabbed onto Malone and lifted him into the air into the centre of the mob. Susan saw the ground beneath him light on fire. The smell of sulphur filled the air. Before she could see what happened, a ghost walked directly in front of her and looked into her eyes. She recognised the bright green eyes of Daniel Ferris. He raised a hand and wordlessly pointed into the ravine, telling her to go. She could not refuse. As she stumbled through the dry riverbed, she heard an inhuman scream filling the air around her. No, I am a myth. I am a legend. I am immortal. The last word was cut off in a flash. 
That was the last thing she heard from the ashen meadow. It was three in the morning when Mr Edwards was awoken by his doorbell. Thinking it had to be an emergency, he jumped out of bed and ran to the door, still in his pyjamas. He was shocked when he opened the door and found Susan Ferris, dishevelled and exhausted with bloodstains on much of her clothing. I got those five things you asked for, Edwards, she said in the most deadpan voice he'd ever heard. I hope you enjoy them as much as I enjoyed getting them. Edwards had no idea what to think. What the hell happened? Who did this to you? he asked. He opened the door wider, inviting her to come in out of the sweltering night, but she stood on the doorstep, eyes a million miles away. It doesn't really matter, she said. I really want to just give you my report and go home. All right, said Edwards, grabbing a phone and starting to call for an ambulance. Go right ahead. The Blagenschlaw was first sighted on 1901. That was ten years after a man named Silas Malone killed three people in Arbour Mill. He would have killed another, but for a man named Daniel Ferris who stopped him. Jesus, said Edwards, recognising her family's name. He took the phone from his ear as an operator picked up. Who else? You won't hear any more accounts of people seeing the Blagenschlaw. If you do, they're bullshit. She paused a moment while she grabbed something out of her pocket. Lastly, the poem's finished. I wrote the last four lines myself. Give this to the lady at the library tomorrow morning. She handed the piece of blood-stained paper to Edwards. He read it quickly and looked back at her. What in God's name happened out there, Susan? For just a moment her eyes watered, but she quickly wiped them with her hand. I already told you five things, Mr Edwards. I'm going home now. Have a nice summer. She turned and walked off into the night. Edwards reluctantly hung up the phone and read the verses she had given him one more time. I too once sought the Blagenschlaw, as many others have before. I found the barren river's shore, the trees, the ash, and nothing more. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.